Welcome to NoSpinHomilies.com. I invite you to join me to reflect upon the homilies of Father Dan. Father Dan will challenge us to open our heart, mind, and soul to the Word of God. Father Dan will draw upon sacred scripture along with art, literature, and the lives of the saints to help us grow in our love and knowledge of the scripture. In doing so, we can become the living Word of God in this world. Now it is my pleasure to present to you No Spin Homilies. Today our church around the world celebrates the great feast of the ascension of Jesus Christ back into heaven. And how appropriate. The first reading is the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verse 1. And it gives us a nice synopsis of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into it, it's important for us to know who the author is of Acts of the Apostles. Well, it's the same author as the Gospel of Luke. It's Luke himself. Now, Luke, before he was baptized and converted to Christianity, he was a physician. So that tells us he's a very intelligent person. More to it, he's a very gifted writer. And we will see that firsthand as we begin to read from the Acts of the Apostles. Now, Luke was a very gifted writer, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke, as well as the Acts of the Apostles, to be read simultaneously. In fact, he intentionally wrote both to be read as one whole novel in order for us to really understand and see the great picture that he saw of what Christianity really meant, what it was, and how we are to live it out in our life. Now, scholars would argue and agree with Luke that the Gospel of Luke, as well as Acts of the Apostles, are essentially one novel. The first chapter of the novel is the Gospel of Luke, which deals entirely about Jesus, his life, his preaching, teaching, miracles, his death and resurrection. The Acts of the Apostles deals exclusively with the life of the church, the conception of the church at Pentecost, and then the growing pains that it experienced, the challenges and the joys of it developing in the first few decades. And so it should be read as one novel. And that's the literary brilliance of Luke. Now, with that in mind, let's go into Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up. Well, the first book that he's referring to is his own gospel. And again, in that gospel, he dealt with everything that Jesus did and taught until his ascension. Now, it appears that he has written the Acts of the Apostles exclusively for this person named Theophilus. Now, it wasn't uncommon for affluent benefactors to sponsor the apostles and the other disciples. So they wouldn't have to worry about money. They wouldn't have to worry about expenses, where they were going to stay tonight, you know, what were they going to eat today. They wouldn't have to worry about any of those things or be preoccupied with those things. Instead, they could focus all their time and their attention on preaching and teaching and evangelizing. Well, Luke could have written the Acts of the Apostles for one person, but he could have addressed it for all of us. Now, that word, Theophilus, it's a Greek word. When translated, it actually means beloved of God. 
Now, with that in mind, put that in the translation. In the first book, Beloved of God, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up. If we truly believe that, then Luke specifically wrote the Acts of the Apostles for every reader who reads it. He wrote it for us because we are all the beloved of God. We are all lovers of God. Therefore, from the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, Luke reaches out and he grabs our attention. He tells us from the very beginning, Acts of the Apostles was written for us. Therefore, we must sit up and pay attention to it. Now he continues, He, being Jesus, presented himself alive to them by many proofs, if he had suffered and appearing to them during 40 days. Now, he had presented himself to be alive by many proofs. Well, now Luke is tackling the fact that Jesus, his resurrection, can be proven in many different ways. First, from the empty tomb. Peter and John, Mary and Mary of Magdalene, and others saw there was an empty tomb. The body could not be found. Another proof, Jesus presented himself. He appeared to the apostles the very night of his resurrection. Another proof was Thomas, in which Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger in my nail marks, put your hand in my side and believe. Another proof, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in which Paul writes that Jesus appeared to 500 people simultaneously. Finally, the greatest proof, Jesus appears to the fiercest enemy of the church, Saul himself, and in doing so, converts Saul, and now becomes Paul, the greatest of all the apostles. Well, see, now Luke is proving, without a doubt, that Jesus truly is risen from the dead. Now, notice also it says, appearing to them during 40 days. Well, it's a basic biblical truth. Whenever you hear a number in Scripture, there's always some sacred symbolism attached to it. In this case, it's a period of preparation. You could say the last period of instruction for the apostles before they are now ready to take on the mission, to continue the mission of Jesus Christ. If you look up and down sacred scripture, whether it's New Testament or Old Testament, people always need a period of preparation before they begin a new mission. Jesus Christ himself needed it. Remember after his baptism, he didn't begin ministry right away. No, he fled into the desert, didn't he? He battled the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Then afterwards, then he went into ministry. He began to preach and teach and evangelize. Well, that was a period of preparation for him. Go in the Old Testament. I'll just give you one example, Moses. He's on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, talking and praying to God. Then afterwards, he receives the Ten Commandments and makes his way down to the Israelites below. See, we all need a period of preparation before we go out on ministry or mission. You know, we continue that same tradition in our church. Anyone who comes forward to receive the sacraments, we ask them for a period of preparation to prepare them so that they can truly fathom and understand the magnitude of the sacrament they are to receive. Eight-year-olds, second graders, they need at least three to four months of preparation before they receive their first Holy Communion. Confirmation students need three years for them to be prepared to receive confirmation. 
an engaged couple. They need at least six to eight months to prepare themselves for not just the wedding, but for a lifetime together. And so we ask people, you know, to make a period of preparation. So once they receive the sacrament, it awakens the presence of God in their life and then sets them on mission. Now, next in the story, the apostles ask Jesus the strange question. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, this is a very strange question. They know Jesus is about to leave him and ascend back into heaven. They know he's not going to be with them anymore. So you'd think if it was you or I, we would be asking him about heaven. What's it like? What kind of bodies are we going to have in heaven? You know, is it going to be a country, a place? What are we going to experience? Or what was it like to die? And, you know, what was it like? What did you feel in the resurrection? You know, those are all questions that at least we would ask. But the apostles, they ask this, you could say stupid, ridiculous question. Now remember, the Israelites for centuries on end, they had this image of a Messiah in their head, an image of David, you know, a political general warrior type Messiah that would restore the Israelite nation as it was or used to be under King David, an economic and military superpower. So they believe Jesus is going to do just that. What are they really asking in this question? When is Jesus going to restore his own government, his own administration? Worse yet, where are they going to be in the pecking order of this new government? Where are they going to, or what positions will they hold? It's a question of the ego. But we don't have to worry. Once the apostles receive the Holy Spirit at the time of Pentecost, all those aspirations, you could say, are wiped away. Now, the only thing that they're concerned about is continuing the mission of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting how Jesus answers this question. He says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has established by his own authority. What the apostles don't realize is they themselves will usher in the kingdom of God. And for centuries on end, that will be the task of our church, even up to this day. You and I can usher in the kingdom of God every day of our life. Now, you may say to yourself, well, what is that? You hear that all the time, the kingdom of God. What is it? What does it mean? Well, it's what the world was when God created or intended it to be before the fall of grace with Adam and Eve. Go back to Genesis. It says that God walked with Adam and Eve in easy fellowship in the cool evening of the garden. Well, see, that's exactly what God intended or created for all of us to be, in a right relationship with God. See, that's what the kingdom of God is. For us to always be in a right relationship with God, righteousness. How do we accomplish that? Simply by living out our faith, living the virtuous life, every day of our life. That is the way that we have a right relationship with God. It's all that God ever wanted from us. And therefore, we usher in the kingdom of God. Now, one last thing to think about. The Feast of the Ascension that we celebrate today binds or links Christmas and Easter. Christmas. Jesus is born into our world. Now, when Jesus is born, he doesn't leave his divinity behind in heaven and is born like you and I with just a human nature. No, 
Instead, he's born into this world with his divinity and humanity fully intact. When he dies and rises from the dead, he doesn't leave his human nature behind. He doesn't say, you know, I'm sick of this grubby human nature. I'm just going to leave it behind in the tomb. No. Instead, he rises with his humanity and divinity fully intact. Well, now, as he ascends back into heaven, he ascends with both his human nature as well as divine nature. And because of this, now heaven has, you could say, accommodated itself or adopted itself to receive our human nature, something that it never received before. And see, that's the beauty of this feast. Now, Jesus has carved out for us a path that never existed before, a path that our ancestors have already walked, our grandparents, our parents, maybe even our children. It's a pathway that we one day hope to walk ourselves. See, this is the reason why we go to Mass every week, we pray every day, we enter into stewardship, we live the virtuous life just because of this, because of the pathway that Jesus has created for us in the Ascension. And it's a pathway that we all hope to walk one day. That's why the Ascension, yes, is a celebration for Jesus Christ, but it's also a celebration for us. All of our hopes and all of our dreams have now become reality through Jesus ascending into heaven. And may the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ rest upon you always.